0: If you time traveled a Victorian-era gentleman and lady to the present, and they saw modern Western women working, what do you think they would say? Well, they'd probably choke on their tea. I mean, women today make up a full half of the labor force. Whatever we might say about equity and leadership, but in Victorian times, women working at all—that well, was a major no-no. E gads, man. Now, women did work in Victorian times, but the thing was, it was seen as low class at
1: best, or demeaning at worst. What future is this? What a dystopia where men force women to labor like drudges! How crude! How barbaric!
0: That's what they might have said about their future, our present. But it seems our dyspeptic Victorians didn't have to get in a time machine to experience this very same reaction. In fact, they had a rather similar reaction in their own DNA age in the 19th century, but it was on the Great Plains of North America. See, the traditional gender roles of Plains tribes like the Lakota baffled European and American settlers, who saw them through the lens of their own gender norms, and they scoffed at Lakota expectations that women work, so unlike their own delicate domestic goddesses. And consequently, they considered Lakota women almost something like sweatshop workers, you know, very nearly enslaved to their husbands in their view. However, they failed to notice that Lakota women were actually considered skilled craftspeople by their own culture, they rose in status independently of their husbands based on the quality of their craftsmanship, they could divorce relatively easily, and self-determine their own fates to a relatively large extent. And how much of that could you have said for white women in Euro-American culture at the time? Hmm. See, if observers had asked the Lakota themselves, they would have been told that, in their view, Men's and women's labor was not exploitative, but rather complementary. Oh, and by the way, they also might have been told that gender was not binary, that there was not only man and woman, but also a third gender called Wink Day, but we'll get to that in a future episode. In any case, all of that, well, let's just say it got lost in translation at the time. Euro-American observers recoiled from Lakota gender norms and railed against them In written accounts. And later, in the reservation period, plains tribes like the Lakota found themselves forced to conform to Western gender norms. And this led not to a rise in women's status, as our Victorian observers would no doubt have expected, but actually to a decline in women's status. In fact, today, many are trying to revive a form of those traditional Lakota gender roles fit for a modern era. So, What was it really like to live and labor as a Lakota woman? Stripped of all the Victorian poppycock, what was life like for women on the Great Plains? That's what we're talking about in today's episode. I'm BT Newberg, and this is the history of sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our Patreon patron, Dave, for making this episode possible. I'd also like to thank Dr. John Cleland Host for help in the preparation of this episode. And finally... Our theme song for today comes courtesy of the Eagle and Raven Band featuring Key Earth Spirit, whose talented frontwoman Blanca Iris Acuna belongs to the Taino tribe. We're trying to showcase native artists in this series wherever possible, and so thank you to them. Folks, this is the third episode in our series Sex on the Great Plains, focusing on the Lakota in the 19th century. For a general overview of Lakota gender norms, check out the first episode. And for the viewpoint of one member of the Lakota tribe today, check out the second. Today, we're looking specifically at women. What was life like for women on the Great Plains? Plains tribes like the Lakota boasted gender norms that befuddled settlers. They were once thought to be a textbook case of patriarchal exploitation, and while I was not able to find a quote specifically addressing the Lakota, the view in the case against them was applied generally to all the Plains tribes, of which the Lakota were one, and so here are a few examples of that view. For example, in 1872, E.D. Neal wrote of the Lakota's cousins, the Dakota, From early childhood they lead worse than a dog's life. Like the Gibeonites of old, they are the hewers of wood and the drawers of water for the camp, uncultivated and made to do the labor of beasts. Likewise, Fanny Kelly, who lived in a Dakota camp as a captive, Remarked in 1873 on the slavish, quote unquote, and unceasing toils, quote unquote, of the women there. And finally, an 1868 letter by Lieutenant George Palmer to the Chicago Tribune describes the Lakota's neighbors on the plains, the Crow. The men are indolent and slothful, and look upon labor as degrading and only fit for women. They compel their women to do all the labor, and often reward the overworked creatures with neglect and cruelty. Yikes. And Palmer goes on to describe a woman's work, saying that she, quote, must move the teepees from place to place, tan all the skins, gather wood, provide the winter supply of food, and take care of the ponies, papooses, and dogs, while her lazy buck rides his horses or lies on soft robes in pleasant places, and occasionally pounds her with a club. Ouch. Not a favorable view. So believe it or not, even today, Depictions of Native American women in film still kind of tend toward this view in a certain sense. See, usually they end up stereotyped as either a princess or a menial, downtrodden drudge. And the latter descends directly from these Victorian-era accounts. However, there's definitely something fishy going on here, because... Later ethnographic studies from the early 20th century report nothing of the kind, nothing like what is said in these letters and reports. So, for example, Hewitt in 1910 and Grinnell in 1923 both explicitly denied that women were slaves. Further, later interviews with actual Lakota women, including Pretty Shield, Iron Teeth, Plenty Coup, and Wooden Legs, denied experiencing overwork or disdain. They just didn't see themselves as fitting that description. So what's going on here? Historian Catherine Weist believes the perception of drudgery was due to Victorian notions of womanhood at the time. See, according to her, settlers thought, "...the proper roles of women were to provide nurturance, psychological support and educational benefits to husbands and children." all activities considered appropriate to Euro-American women who were the models for what Indian women should become. In actuality, Euro-American women had lost many of the productive activities they had performed during the 17th and 18th centuries. Due to an increase in industrialization, competition for jobs by large numbers of poor laborers, and the development of a middle class during the 19th century, many women no longer had their previous economic freedoms and became more dependent upon men. There arose around women a, quote, cult of true womanhood, unquote, characterized by the virtues of piety, purity, submissiveness, and domesticity. Huh. So it seems that settlers saw Plains tribes, along with many other peoples, through a very peculiar lens. They took norms that were unique to their own industrial way of life, not just unique to European-descended ways of life, but their own era of European-descended ways of life, and they took those norms as the standard for all women everywhere and judged them accordingly. Settlers, especially those of the middle and upper classes, who were, frankly, the ones most likely to leave retin accounts behind, recoiled at the treatment of women on the plains. Forgetting their own recent history of women's labor completely, they believed women such delicate flowers that they ought not be asked to lift a finger. And consequently, when they saw women on the plains stretching and tanning hides, putting up and tearing down tepees, trucking firewood, well, they nearly swallowed their cravats. Why, well, you couldn't find a better example of women exploited by men than here. These poor women are practically sweatshop workers. Hmm, but were they, though? What was it really like to live and labor as a Lakota woman on the Great Plains? And how did it come to be that way? That's what we're going to find out next. But first... We'll take a short break, and we'll be back after this. And now, the History of Sex presents an audio drama. Hey folks, we've got something very special for you today. An audio drama presentation of excerpts from a story by a Yankton author. Now, Yankton, that's one of those tribes sometimes called Nakota, related to the Dakota and the Lakota. This is an excerpt from a story by Yankton female author Zitkala Shah. Born in 1876, she was of the first generation raised in the boarding school system, which removed children from their parents, forced them to become Christian, and attempted to erase from them all trace of tribal ways—kill the Indian to save the man, as it was once put. Zidkala Shah became a stalwart activist against this system, as well as an accomplished author, editor, translator, educator, musician, and opera writer. Now this story, published in the Atlantic Monthly in 1902, evokes her traditional spirituality and is entitled, Why I Am a
1: Pagan. When the spirit swells my breast, I love to roam leisurely among the green hills, or sometimes, when sitting on the brink of the murmuring Missouri, I marvel at the great blue overhead. With half-closed eyes, I watch the huge cloud shadows and their noiseless play upon the high bluffs opposite me, while into my ear ripple the sweet, soft cadences of the river's song. Folded hands lie in my lap for the time forgot. My heart and I lie small upon the earth like a grain of throbbing sand. Drifting clouds and tinkling waters, together with the warmth of a genial summer day, we speak with eloquence the loving mystery round about us. Yellow breast, swaying upon the slender stem of a wild sunflower, warbles a sweet assurance of this as I pass nearby. Breaking off the clear, crystal song, he turns his wee head from side to side, eyeing me wisely as slowly I plod with moccasined feet. Then again he yields himself to his song of joy. Flit, flit, hither and yon. he fills the summer sky with his swift, sweet melody. And truly, does it seem, his vigorous freedom lies more in his little spirit than in his wing. With these thoughts, I reach the log cabin, whither I am strongly drawn by the tie of a child to an aged mother. Out bounds my four-footed friend to meet me, frisking about my path with unmistakable delight. Chan is a black, shaggy dog, a thoroughbred little mongrel of whom I am very fond. Chan seems to understand many words in Sue and will go to her mat even when I whisper to her, though generally I think she is guided by the tone of the voice. Often she tries to imitate the sliding inflection and long-drawn-out voice to the amusement of our guests, but her articulation is quite beyond my ear. In both my hands I hold her shaggy head and gaze into her large brown eyes. At once, the dilated pupils contract into tiny black dots as if the roguish spirit within would evade my questioning. Finally, resuming the chair at my desk, I feel in keen sympathy with my fellow creatures, for I seem to see clearly again that all are akin. The racial lines, which were once bitterly real, now serve nothing more than marking out a living mosaic of human beings. And even here, men of the same color are like the ivory keys of one instrument where each represents all the rest, yet varies from them in pitch and quality of voice. And those creatures who are, for a time, mere echoes of another's note, are not unlike the fable of the thin, sick man whose distorted shadow, dressed like a real creature, came to the old master to make him follow as a shadow. Thus, with a compassion for all echoes in human guise, I greet the solemn-faced native preacher whom I find waiting for me. Cousin? I listen with respect for God's creature, though he mouth most strangely the jangling phrases of a bigoted creed. As our tribe is one large family where every person is related to all the others, he addressed me.
0: Cousin? I come from the morning church services to talk with you. And the native preacher goes on to tell her of the reward of heaven, the punishment of hell, and the folly of the old beliefs. Zitkala Shah continues.
1: I offered my midday meal to the converted Indian, sitting wordless and with downcast face. No sooner had he risen from the table with,
0: Cousin, I have relished it.
1: Then the church bell rang. Thither he hurried forth with his afternoon sermon. I watched him as he hastened along, his eyes bent fast upon the dusty road till he disappeared at the end of a quarter of a mile. Still, I would not forget that the pale-faced missionary and the hoodooed aborigine are both God's creatures, though small indeed their own conceptions of infinite love. A wee child toddling in a wondrous world, I prefer to their dogma my excursions into the natural gardens where the voice of the great spirit is heard in the twitterings of birds, the rippling of mighty waters, and the sweet breathing of flowers. If this is paganism, then at present at least, I am a pagan.
0: All right, we're back. Now, What was it really like for women on the Great Plains? Were Zitkala Shaw and her sisters among the Plains tribes really drudges as the Victorians would have us believe? As we heard in the first episode of this series for the Lakota, tasks were divided along gender lines. And this is by no means uncommon for pre-modern cultures, nor for modern ones, for that matter. After all, Euro-American culture was arguably even more strictly divided along gender lines at this time. But we'll leave that as it lies. So, in short, it's not surprising to find a strict gender coding of tasks. However, it does seem that Plains tribes like the Lakota at this time were especially pronounced in this respect, relative to other Native American tribes in North America. As anthropologist Raymond DeMalley explains, In symbolic terms, the distinction between male and female was the single most important attribute for defining an individual in Lakota culture. Sex differences were emphasized in virtually every aspect of life, Masculinity and femininity were marked most importantly by behavioral differences. Sexual division of labor was very rigid, and it may be said that behavior itself was the most important criterion differentiating male from female. Now, as the Lakota adapted to life on the plains, gender roles broke down around, specifically, bison, divided between hunting and processing bison. To sum up what we learned in our first episode about this... If you were male, you were in charge of hunting. You scouted for bison, spied out the herd, organized the approach, made the kill, and transported it back to camp. And you also defended and enlarged the tribe through raids and warfare, which secured access to the bison herd. Now, if you were female, when the bison carcasses get brought back to camp by men, they're handed over to you for pretty much everything else necessary. Thus, your rules included cooking meat, drying meat into jerky, tanning hides, fashioning hides into clothing, bedding, and teepee dressings, decorating hides, crafting utensils, tools, and implements, and generally manufacturing bison into every other product necessary for survival, comfort, and trade on the Great Plains. You also did beadwork and quillwork using dyed porcupine quills, and when it came time to move the camp, it was your job to strike and pack the teepee, guard it during the move, and erect it again upon arrival. Finally, you gathered firewood, fetched water, and cared for children." Now, This gender division between the hunting and processing of bison meant that the male sphere was largely outside the camp, whereas the female sphere was largely inside the camp. And to Victorian observers, this was apparently dangerously close to their own breakdown of male and female spheres, so they kind of ended up mistaking Lakota women for mere domestic servants even though it kind of fit their own customs a little more accurately. They saw men coming back from the hunt and lounging around on soft hides while the women did all the work, and they just assumed that the one was virtually enslaved to the other. They failed completely to recognize that the Lakota way was less like a slave and master and really more like two departments of a factory. Each provided the other with the goods necessary for their department to function, men procured the raw goods that women turned then into refined products, which in turn helped men to procure raw goods. So Lakota women were not slaves to their husbands. And to see that, consider first that women were usually able to choose their own mates, as D'Malley explains. Although the ultimate decision as to whether a girl should marry a particular suitor was the responsibility of her male relatives, particularly her brother's, In theory, and normally in practice, girls were allowed to make their own decisions as to whom to marry. So that's one thing. Now, next, consider that women could divorce their husbands quite easily. Divorce was simple in Lakota society and could be initiated by either husband or wife. The teepee belonged to the woman, and the children usually went with their mother in the case of divorce. Now, maybe it's just me... But it seems like it would be a strange thing indeed if a slave could run away from bondage so easily, yet did not do so. And notice also that Damali says that the teepee belonged to the woman. He doesn't mean this figuratively, but he actually means this quite literally. Married couples continued to own their own property separately, in Lakota culture, and everything pertaining to the home, including the teepee, typically belonged to the wife. And by the way, she might own livestock as well. She had quite a bit of her own property. And in light of this, it really kind of becomes pretty clear that Lakota women, far from being enslaved in the home, were actually masters of the home. See, unlike traditional Western norms where women are domestics, but men are the householders, Lakota women were themselves the householders. They could take their teepee and go, just leaving a man shivering in the cold. So, that shows you at least something. Now, not only were women empowered to pick up and leave if unhappy with their husbands, but also they earned social status independently from their husbands as well. Citing a Lakota man named George Sword, Damali writes, Sword leaves no doubt that the work of men was considered to be more glorious and highly honored than the work of women, but it is equally clear from his account that Lakota women were accorded a full measure of respect for the performance of the work appropriate to their sex. And that performance attached to the quality of their craftsmanship, as historian Mary Jane Schneider describes... The manner in which a woman could obtain wealth and status through her craftwork is analogous to the manner in which a man obtained wealth and status through brave exploits. Women counted robes and teepee covers in much the same way that men counted coup. So that's kind of interesting, and this may have manifested similarly to a custom that could be found among the neighboring tribe, the Blackfoot, with whom the Lakota shared many customs in common. As historian Royal Hasrick explains, among the Blackfoot, women took pride in the number and quality of robes that they dressed, often keeping records and referring to them when about to perform a ceremony. Accomplishments were recorded by means of dots incised along the handles of the polished elkhorn scraping tools. The dots on one side were black, on the other red, and each black dot represented a tanned robe where each red dot represented ten hides, or one teepee. And when a woman had completed one hundred robes, or ten teepees, she was privileged to place an incised circle at the base of the handle of her scraper. So it's almost like keeping trophies, right? Now, whether the Lakota followed their Blackfoot neighbors in this particular custom, well, that's difficult to say. But we do know that Lakota women were honored for their work. Hasrick adds... The Sioux also had a quilling contest, in which output was measured, and the four top women were publicly honored. So, in short, Lakota women were lauded for their craftsmanship in a manner akin to the war and hunting glories that were heaped upon men, and may even have displayed their glories prominently, similar to the Blackfoot hidescraper custom. Thus, it's kind of difficult to maintain with the Victorians that Lakota women were virtually enslaved to men. They own their own property, could leave their husbands readily, and won honors for their skill. The Victorian charge of sweatshop drudgery, well, it just doesn't track. <laughs> now, another thing that misled Victorian observers was the Lakota practice of polygamy, which is the practice where one man might have multiple wives. And while this can and often does lead to inequality among the sexes in many cultures, it can also contribute to greater independence for women. As we heard in our previous episode, Go West Young Woman, Mormon women in polygynous arrangements, and remember not all Mormons or even the majority of Mormons practice polygyny, but some did, Mormon women in polygynous arrangements had to be self-sufficient during times when their husband was away on business or with another wife, and consequently, they were raised into this very independent, and frankly, to some extent, kind of empowered role. And similarly, Lakota women were quite capable of supporting themselves while the men were away on long hunts or raids. Further, speaking of multiple wives, you know, a new wife can actually bring prosperity to the whole family, not just the husband. See, another wife in the household means dividing the work, and that's a prospect that may not have been entirely unwelcome to existing wives. And it also meant expanding production. It's kind of like hiring more workers at your factory. According to historian Catherine Weist, among the Lakota's cousins, the Dakota, who were deeply involved in the fur trade, one man could bring in more furs than two women could feasibly tan. Now, I have to imagine that the case for Lakota bison hunting was probably similar, if not more so. And therefore, another wife meant another co-worker, which meant increased production, which meant increased prosperity. Buys and hides were desirable trade goods, so more wives meant more wealth for the whole family, again, not necessarily entirely unwelcome. Now, I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture, I mean, maybe it was unwelcome, and jealousy is usually a problem when you get into situations like this, there were some downsides to arrangements like this, as there always are. Jealousy was a common theme, but to cut down on that at least a little bit, Lakota polygamy was sororal, as anthropologists call it, and that means that one man might marry multiple sisters or cousins, so all of the wives were related by blood. And this was preferred ostensibly so that the wives might be more likely to get along at the same time however it also made it possible for the wives to present a united front against their husband if necessary and thus wives in polygynous arrangements were in this respect bolstered with allies if they needed them and for further support wives could also call on other relatives for backup sometimes see unlike the modern west lakota did not live in nuclear families but in extended family units called Teoshpaye, and thus if in need of aid against their husband, wives could muster the whole extended family against him. And that might very well be her very own birth family because a married unit in Lakota culture might live with the teoshpai of the husband or might live with the teoshpai of the wives. It could be either one. So she might be able to call upon her very own blood kin if she needed support in a dispute. Thus, Lakota polygamy did not necessarily spell inequality. All the other caveats about arrangements like this notwithstanding, in some ways it may have fostered independence, prosperity, and a certain kind of empowerment for Lakota women. Now we should also remember that this was a population decimated by smallpox and other diseases, and while this may not have been the initial reason for polygamy, it must have helped. Since a man can theoretically impregnate all his wives at once, whereas a woman with multiple husbands, just you just can't do that. You can only carry one of their children at a time. Rare cases of twins or triplets or things like that, but most of the time, just one child at a time. So because of this polygyny where a man has multiple wives, well, frankly, that can help with a recovering population. So in the big picture, the division of labor and the practice of polygyny which made the Victorians' parasols pop inside out. (gasps) Well, it just wasn't the virtual slavery that was claimed at the time. On the contrary, it was an arrangement that valued women's labor, accorded them honor on the merit of their craftsmanship, empowered them within the family, provided a measure of self-determination, and aided the recovery of a decimated population. Now, all of that notwithstanding, it is true that Lakota arrangements were unequal in some respects. Women do do a lot of work. I mean, child-rearing alone is a full-time job. And then, you heard that long list I read to you before, right? Processing hides, carrying water, gathering firewood, cooking, cleaning, making clothes. I mean, it just sounds exhausting, right? So, I mean, that makes me wonder, what did Lakota women themselves... Actually, think of this arrangement. I mean, are we just getting a biased view of Lakota culture from what happens to come down to us? Is it... do we only have men's accounts? Well, no, actually. If we read accounts from Lakota women themselves, did they feel it was unfair? And the answer is... no. Apparently not. DeMalley summarizes the typical Lakota woman's view. The ultimate aim of all the men's glorious activities in war and hunting that took them far from the comforts of camp, was the continuation of society. From the Lakota point of view, the glory was recompense for the suffering that was required. In a culturally real sense, it was men who subordinated themselves to women, resisting sexual temptations and the comforts of home to risk their lives in war and hunting, and humiliating themselves before the powers of the universe to beg for spiritual help to enable them to accomplish their duties as providers and protectors. Now, interestingly, this view frames equality not as a question of labor, but as a question of risk. Sure, women did a lot of the labor, but men accepted much of the risk, and that, for the Lakota, was apparently a fair trade-off. As Yankton anthropologist Ella Deloria writes in 1944, A woman caring for her children and doing all the work around the house thought herself no worse off than her husband, who was compelled to risk his life continuously, hunting and remaining ever on guard against enemy attacks on his family. So in light of that, the Lakota felt their rigidly divided gender roles were not exploitative, but complementary. As anthropologist Patricia Albers summarizes, The ideal relationship between men and women was based on principles of complementarity. Under these principles, the members of each sex were expected to be proficient in their respective work activities and self-sufficient as well. Work autonomy and prior claims on the products of one's labor, however, did not mitigate against voluntary sharing between the sexes. For just as each sex was accorded a certain degree of independence from the other, men and women were expected to be generous and willingly share the products of their respective labors." In other words, men and women worked together. They were each masters of their own domain, but did not for that reason abandon each other. They shared the fruits of their work and together made a greater whole. Now this view was apparently held by both men and women. I mean, if the division of labor were perceived as unfair by one party in the arrangement, well, then you would probably expect for the other to feel it necessary to enforce it upon them. But this was actually not the case. As Deloria explains, The sexual division of labor was strictly upheld. Women doing the work of their husbands or men doing the work of their wives prompted ridicule from other Lakotas. It was dishonorable for both partners. So commitment to the division of labor was mutual. And not only that, but it was often the women who enforced it upon men. If a man was found doing what was considered women's work, the women would ridicule him and attempt to dress him in women's clothes. (laughs) So there you have it. In the view of the Lakota themselves, men and women were not unequal, or at least not drastically so, and at least not for the standards of the day, and certainly not in comparison to Euro-American women at the time. Lakota women were equally committed to the gender arrangement of their culture, and they enforced it upon each other enthusiastically. So, at the end of the day, were Victorians and Euro-American settlers right to consider Lakota women drudges and very nearly enslaved to their husbands? The answer is no. And in fact, if anything, Lakota women presaged the modern Western woman who is proud to take part in the workforce. In a very real sense for us in the modern West today, we have Lakota women to look back to as our foremothers. Well, that's all I've got for you today, folks. I hope you learned something today. I certainly did. We've got still more coming for you in this series. Next up, we're going to be taking a look at the third gender in Lakota society, the two spirits tradition of the Winkte. We're going to talk about what two spirits even is. It's, by the way, a modern term, not a traditional Native American term. We'll get into that next time. And we're going to look specifically at the Lakota Winkte which reveals that Lakota gender relations, so rigidly divided between masculine and feminine, may not have been so neatly binary as they may on first glance appear. That's what's slated for next month. A big thank you once again to the Eagle and the Raven Band featuring Key Earth Spirit for contributing the theme song for today's episode. You can check them out on YouTube or SoundCloud. If you like what we're doing here on this show, folks, you can support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a wanderer of the plains, hunting on horseback or hauling your handcrafted teepee, or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome. I promise. And by the way... The proceeds from Patreon collected during this series will be donated to One Spirit, a volunteer organization helping the Lakota meet their goal of achieving food sovereignty and self-sufficiency in their communities. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg, that's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g to help the show and help the Lakota. All right, I'll see you next month. I'm BT Newberg, and this is the History of Sex. podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin MacLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.